HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today to talk a little bit about the breadth of bread and baking with two excellent uh, bakers. From sweet baking to bread baking, Shuna Fishleiden and Jeremy Shapiro. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Um, just want to mention a little about the both of you. Uh, Shuna has had a lauded career and most recently was a semifinalist as a James Beard Pastry Chef of the Year. Um, now works at Peels in New York City. But I've been following her work uh, for quite some time uh, via Eggbeater. Um, is it eggbeater.typepad.com? A wonderful blog about all things. All things, actually. It's not just limited to baking, sweet baking, uh, savory, about food and life in general. And Jeremy provides my food porn. Um, it's mainly in the images of the wonderful breads that he makes, attempts to make, explores. And I really think this is a, a lost art uh, in both bread and sweet baking in the U.S. and is only starting to be revived uh, again that, you know... Uh, Pastry has always been pitted downstairs, you know, away from everything else, but it's being brought out to the forefront. And bakeries, like bread bakeries, have gone commercial white bread for so long, and now whole grains are coming back, and it's like, what happened? Where, where, where was it all this time? Um, we'll start a little with Shuna. I also want to explore your background uh, in cooking. We were just talking before that you started your career in San Francisco. Yes, as a savory cook. And where did you start? I started cooking at really small restaurants. Uh, they're not really around anymore. And then I had sort of a very strange break where I went to go work at Lulu at the time that Reed Heron was the chef. And they were doing sort of, you know, 
500 people on a Friday night was pretty normal. So it was really this job I I probably shouldn't have had. I had zero experience and I had no idea what I was doing. So it was really trial by fire, but I learned quite a bit. Yeah. And then from there, away from 500 people during service, uh, what more low and slow kind of places do you work at? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, after Lulu, actually, I came to New York City, and I worked um, I worked in a number of restaurants. I worked at Gramercy Tavern. I worked at Mesa Grill and Bolo. Um, I worked at Verbena. Uh, Diane Forley was the chef and owner. Um, those are really the, the, you know, I would say sort of Gramercy Tavern really formed me as a, as a pastry person. Yeah. So I took you away from savory into pastry. And why do you think that transition? Actually, when I was at Lulu, it was a gigantic, massive kitchen with a lot of, the year that I was there, Reed opened a cafe on one side of the restaurant and then a sort of bistro on the other side of the restaurant. And I became, in the year that I was there, I became a tournant. So starting in Garmage, there were two positions in Garmage, hot and cold. I ended up doing both. Then I opened the cafe and I was the oyster person, breakfast person. And I had begun to bother the pastry chef. And we had also had an in-house baker very much making the bread in the style Jeremy makes. Um, so he was there overnight. So even though I knew nothing, I think I knew by looking, wow, this restaurant does a lot. Of course, I knew nothing because I, I didn't have comparison to make until years later but I started incessantly bothering the pastry chef and at first she gave me one plating night every week and then someone you know left or quit and I got a little bit more but I just pushed really hard I basically gave her every day off every hour that I had off because I wanted to learn so by the time I left Lulu, I had done everything. I had done savory. I had been on the line. I had, you know, done all this garmage work. And then I started doing pastry. And I think I just started, I mean, Anthony Bourdain has this line in Kitchen Confidential where he says the pastry chef is the neurologist of the kitchen. And it really takes a different mind. And I think I really realized at Lulu... I have that crazy, organized, you know, super particular. I'm interested in the minutia of things. I, I had that personality, so I continued on yeah. with pastry. Well, you're willing to weigh things out. It's a <laughs> lot of line cooks aren't. And, and Jeremy, what, what was your climb to where you are today with bread? Um, well, I think it really started in the Army. Um, that's where I learned to cook, actually. Uh, prior to that, I'd been doing some catering when, with my brother in, in restaurants. He's also a chef in Colorado in a dude ranch. And uh, I kind of followed his footsteps first going to the military, which is actually a really good program to learn how to cook because yeah. you do huge numbers or really small numbers. And I ended up going to the best place in Germany to, to work, a uh, small base of 500 people, headquarters for the general staff, and 
ended up working for the generals and whenever went out to the field i got to sleep in a hotel while everybody was in a tent (laughs) but um i basically learned baking skills there uh one of my uh, friends was doing some illegal things and they threw him out and he was the head baker so i ended up taking over his position in my final years in in germany and and you really learn uh, great things with the recipe card uh, system that they have. It's based on percentages, which I had no idea yeah. would be later on really important to me, even though everything was based on an American measuring system, which really drives me insane. It's like <laughs> grams should be it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny. Uh, speaking of metrics, most cook deal with metric. No. 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 We wish yeah. that they would, and we wish uh, Jeremy and I and some other people are sort of, you know, Michael Roman, we're jumping on a bandwagon to really push metrics through um, for for some similar reasons, but also for different reasons. But basically everything in America, even still in the culinary schools, you'll see recipes where there'll be an an out you know five ounces of this three cups of this and 62 grams of this and you're thinking to yourself why (laughs) why would you you know 99 percent of people do not know how much a cup of anything weighs Mm -hmm. you don't need to know how much a cup of something weighs yet if you have 15 people in a kitchen measuring a cup of something it will all be a different weight because people measure cups differently so what I always say to people is you learn to bake better if you work in metric because you can physically see the percentages. I'm Unlike Jeremy, I didn't have any percentage. I didn't have all my training is on the job. So if I was working in a recipe in one restaurant, that then a different I didn't go to school I don't have that so when I went to work in Europe a few years ago wow what a big (laughs) change suddenly you have to think in metric but it actually was easier because if you see you have a hundred of this and a thousand of this you know immediately the percentage whereas if you you have 52 cups of something what what is it's that? Like how many ounces are in a cup? How many? All those stupid conversions. Yeah. Base 10. <laughs> you know? Easiest thing. Um, actually, I'm really interested in this army. Uh, uh, these cards that you were talking about. Uh, they were just like crib sheets. They were just res- uh, you know, uh, recipes. No, they were standardized recipes yeah. for every recipe known to the United States military. Yeah. I still a, have a set. Really? Is there yeah. a cookbook? Uh, uh, no, but things? you can actually download a CD for these things. And they're really awesome because... Yeah. Uh, I think actually the the donut plant uh, guy, his grandfather was in the military, and I swear that's the same recipe for the donut. <laughs> the donut? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're really great baking recipes. I mean, some of the food stuff eh, could yeah. be changed, and they have they've made it lighter and more nutritious. Yeah. But let me tell you, when you're a soldier humping many hours a day, which we used to do, I mean, we'd be up at four in the morning and you didn't go to bed sometimes till four the next day and drive huge convoy things out to the field. You would definitely like a spam sandwich on white bread from Texas. Yeah. Because, damn, it felt good eating that stuff. Yeah. You know, you need the carbs and stuff. Yeah. But no more jello for me. I'm like, <laughs> I'm all Mr. Healthy. Sourdough yeah. is me. <laughs> Live fermentation. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, from the Army, where did your career take you? Uh, I ended up coming back to the States and um, figured, hell, I'm cooking now. Why, not? Why don't I just go to New York? And my brother was at the Museum of Modern Art and... Uh, 
he got me into a job there with a French chef that was there, and he ended up taking the position of this guy who left, and uh, I worked there for three years at the MoMA, uh, which was really actually an interesting place. Um, it wasn't what it is today. It's completely changed. We had a big cafeteria. We thir- served thousands of people, and then we had a private dining room, and my brother was pretty eclectic from the start, so we just did like anything and everything, and people liked it, you know, and then I started, like, I ended up leaving after three years, you know, reading a lot of Jacques Pepin while I was, like, butchering a piece of lamb and ended up going to French restaurants, primarily because my mother's French, and I thought, that's where you should go. I mean, the the 80s were, like, still French, you yeah. know, before the Italians took over. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of culture or cuisine influenced you, Sheena? I studied... You know, as I said, I did all my training on the job. And in some ways, I took any job that was offered to me. Um, but I, you know, def- there was definitely a point in my career, in my trajectory, where I thought, I like this, I don't like this. And I started to realize I want to work with, serve, and make food that I want to eat. And, um, you know, unbeknownst to me, this early training in California was starting to creep up. Even though I grew up in New York, it was starting to sort of creep through my New York roots and really say to me, you know, somewhat seasonal, somewhat local. You know, even though, you know, in the early to mid 90s, those words went there. The green market, the Union Square green market was sometimes three stalls. You know, yeah. it was nothing and like Union it Square is today. Was a completely different place. And exactly. Yeah. So then, you know, that's when sort of I hit Verbena, Gramercy Tavern, those sorts of restaurants that really started defining. I was working for pastry chefs who, you know, Claudia was putting she had one dessert. It was it was blackberry, all these different berries warmed with a little bit of rose sabayon and it was it was brilliant you know so simple but something like those flavors they just match and it's absolutely summer and she was working with corn all these ingredients that people are sort of like oh look someone's making blah 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 and I'm thinking I saw this you know 20 years ago but it was those foods that started to really define who I was going to be eventually yeah, it's interesting that you talk about the savory into the sweet baking. Um, do you see a lot of that now? And when do you think that was happening in culinary culture? You know, it's this is a very funny point because um, I remember when I got to the French Laundry and I was working with Stephen Durfee, who was then the pastry chef, and he had incredible ultimate freedom. And, you know, we had all these different courses and amuse and so forth. So he, we could make anything. And one day he made caraway ice cream, which just blew my mind. It was so beautiful. You know, it, I, I'm Jewish, so I grew up with Jewish rye. To make caraway is one flavor. That's it, you know, really in a box. And he made this caraway ice cream, and I thought, Oh my goodness, he's brilliant. And then about a week later, I'm flipping through my Escoffier cookbook. You know, it's about 500 years old. And I see (laughs) caraway ice cream. And I think, oh, you know, I really, I don't love getting caught up in trends and who's doing this and who's working with salt and who's working with bacon. It's, nothing is new. 
nothing is new. But it doesn't it doesn't sort of mean I have to lie down and die because I'm never going to make anything new. I'm going to make something. It's going to be new for me. It's going to be new for my team, my cooks, my restaurant, my diners, my clientele. That's what's interesting to me. So I don't sweet and savory. Corn has more sugar in it than a strawberry. But how how come corn is considered sweet? A tomato is a fruit, you know. Fennel, you know, it's fennel is sweet. You get licorice. I get, you know what I mean. I don't. That stuff really, you know, I don't want to get all uppity, <laughs> but it it bothers me because it's not. I don't see anyone out there doing anything that has never been done before, but that's not what fuels me. That's not what inspires me is the trends that the magazines say. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back to find out what actually fuels Shuna and maybe a couple life-changing loaves from Jeremy. You've been listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Thursday at 1 p.m., Heather Hyman and Aaron Fairbanks explore the real roles in building a strong community and sustainable farm system. They get nitty-gritty with the people producing our food. They explore distribution networks, dissect policy issues, and converse with some of the nation's most important agents for change to examine current events in the world of agriculture and food. Join them every Thursday live at 1 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network, where all is grist for the mill. Welcome back to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network, talking baking, sweet, and bread with Ishuna Fishleiden and Jeremy Shapiro. But first, wanted to thank uh, Hearst Ranch for sponsoring the show. Hearst is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result? Beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. So check it out, hearstranch.com. Now back to bread. Back to bacon. Life-changing loaves, Jeremy. Uh, During the break, Shuna was 
trying to uh, remind Jeremy of this Swedish mixed rye and wheat loaf. Uh, yeah, I got it from this uh, baker who has a blog, and generally uh, I just go through all different blogs and any language source that says bread or brot or <laughs> anything pane. Yeah. Uh, pan. How many? How many different languages do you know the word bread in? Oh, <laughs> I just look at the pictures. Yeah. And go, okay, that's got to be bread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just kind of like. One of my favorite uh, grains really is rye, just because I was born in Germany and lived there while I was in the service. And it's just got so many dimensions and flavors. And Germany actually is, I found out recently, the country that eats the most bread in the world. And I wouldn't doubt it because the bread there is pretty awesome. Yeah. What What's the biggest flavor profile difference of bread in Germany to the U.S.? Uh, gosh. That's... It's more complex. Yeah. It really is. I mean, you have to... Each place has their individual style of bread. It's almost like the beer in Germany. You, yeah. you go to one town, it's completely different than the other. And I mean, there's really common kinds of loaves. But I mean, I know a baker in East uh, Thuringia in Eastern Germany, and he learned uh, baking bread while the Russians were there. And uh, he said he you know, always wanted to try what it was like the bread in, in West Germany. And when he finally did, he goes, <laughs> ours isn't that bad. Yeah. And, and he makes pretty awesome loaves, and I've you know, tried some of his recipes, which are pretty amazing, and I continuously follow his, his blog, and he really is a great person to, to source information from, because he shares with other bloggers who, in turn, it's kind of like Johnny Appleseed of bread. It just yeah. goes around the world, and you know, just meeting these people and knowing what they do, it's just more inspiring all the time to do. Is there try like- it. A sourdough starter sharing community too, like the seed uh, there savers. Actually, there actually are people who do that. Yes. They, you know, they sell their sourdoughs yeah. and stuff. But I mean, I had a guy send me sourdough from Australia, and you know, there's like this big band now, I guess, to sell it, sending little white packets because it would be <laughs> a little bit strange. So, yeah. a friend of mine in Canada is opening a bakery. He's like, oh, "I'm going to send you a pack of uh, sourdough because you know I've just moved and I didn't have my sourdough, so." had to restart it. Yeah. (laughs) I think something really worth mentioning here, um, I feel like Jeremy is being quite humble, but um, something amazing about bread baking, and Jeremy is my go-to person. I've started a starter at Peel's. I've started a few different starters at Peel's. And um, when I was in working in London, Jeremy literally by way of the internet introduced me to somebody who if we don't mention him on radio right now it would do a disservice to the whole program his name is Dan Leopard and Dan how do you, Leopard how do you spell Leopard L E P A R D yes and um he is a master bread baker but even more than being this incredible craftsperson he's an entire you know, he's the New York Public Library of knowledge about bread and flour, and his books do not speak to you as if you're a complete idiot. They go into incredible detail. I mean, among professional bread bakers, there's a whole sort of language of talking about flour and yeast, and it's just, it's the depth of baking. It's you could drop a penny into it and a hundred years later not hear the echo. It's so deep. It's so, and this is you know I think one of the reasons what attracted me to Jeremy or he to I was 
I'm really interested in the craft of baking. So it doesn't really matter if I'm making, you know, a cookie or he's making sort of one of these incredible loaves of bread. It it's it's the depth of baking that, you know, I get, you know, anyone could pick any style of cooking or baking today, molecular, whatever you want to call it. But there's something about baking, it just goes beyond that. So, I mean, I, you know, what I would love to hear from Jeremy is, you know, how those flavors are achieved. Why is something like a starter more interesting than than a yeast? Yeah. And rye in general, too. I think people are aware of the grain itself, but they don't understand the the breadth of that grain too um what kind of grains do you primarily use or are fascinating to you um well i think there's so many i mean in switzerland when i was visiting my sister there's spelt which is a really amazing grain uh it has a very low um, gluten structure and it's very challenging to bake but the flavor is just amazing it's just and i use it in in my kitchen i use it instead of using whole wheat flour i keep a bag of it to to replace so that's where i get my yeah. the flavor of that whole wheat flavor yeah. from well i mean it's amazing just seeing like you keep on using the word complexity of uh, shuna's pastry case at peels um that there are so many ideas relative to bread baking in using different and alternative flours and bases um i think that has been so standardized in baking across the board for so long that there has been white flour whole wheat flour now that whole grains are coming in, people are understanding that there's more to... And seeds. And, yeah, yeah. And using old bread to make a new bread. It's really... Uh, there's so many variables in baking. I think that's what people don't understand. There's there's so many dimensions of what you can do. And I... Lately, just because I don't have all the flours that I had before, I just... I simplify. I just go, my standard wheat, some rye, a little bit of spelt if I have some, or... Just anything, just to make a really great loaf, is it's just focusing on what it is that you're trying to achieve. And, uh, you know, you know your parameters. There's hydration levels. There's uh, retarding, if you want. Or just, you know, if you want to use commercial yeast, eh. Yeah. Are you a wild yeast guy? I am a wild yeast guy, but I'm not a snob. Because, you know what? Some people are challenged and scared to, to really go into it. And why not? If you can make a loaf of bread, enjoy it. Or just don't use any yeast. Just use water and flour, and you can then get a flat bread, which is yeah. wonderful as well. So I, I want to say, too, that the what's interesting here is when when Jeremy is bra- baking breads with the, just an incredible variety of, of flours, and what I want to say about those flours is there, when we were talking about this earlier, Michael, that... Wheat flour is so standardized the world over that you can trust that a pastry flour here in the United States and a pastry flour in France and Canada, they're all going to be the same because it starts from wheat, which is a highly controlled commodity. But then you have something like a teff or even a cornmeal, a a non-glutinous, non-wheat-based... Mesquite flour, which you introduced me to. Exactly. So you have these flours. They're... Their flowers, in quotes, they come in all these different grinds. And I want to say one of one of the differences between Jeremy and I is Jeremy is using those flowers to achieve very specific, intriguing 
complex, dynamic textures. And one of the ways that myself, but Jeremy is a savory chef, bread baker, I'm a pastry chef, so I'm more dealing with sweet, is I'm often using those flours to achieve a flavor. So I love buckwheat as a flavor. And, you know, it's not a wheat. It's a very complex, interesting grain. And that's what's amazing to me. I mean, that to me is is where the interest is. Because a person who's afraid, they're afraid of bread baking. Bread baking is sort of challenging. One of the reasons why they're afraid of natural starters or ferments is because you don't get this rise. So you asked earlier, what's the difference between, let's say, a German bread and an American bread or German or French? Is It's the complexity of flavor, but it's mostly texture. Americans are very... They have an idea in their head that bread is one texture, and it's a very light texture, which almost has to be made with some kind of commercial yeast because it's it's like baking powder. It's a huge leavening push. Yeah. So, you know, something that Jeremy um, gave me a piece of advice about recently, my, the temperature in my kitchen at Peels varies just wildly, and... I was concerned that um, my, my starter might be hurting. You know, it got very warm in the kitchen a few weeks ago. And Jeremy said over the phone, just use a little bit of yeast, you know, just, just for a little bit of yeah. push. And it was sort of like, you know, someone telling you, you know, at the playground, you can walk away from your kids for a minute. They're not going to die <laughs> without you. You yeah. know, it was so, you know, I, I feel like if someone is listening who's sort of afraid to make bread, I want to give the advice which Jeremy gave me by way of Dan Leopard, which was just start, just start the journey. And you know, Jeremy is bringing up a really good point, which is that there's huge communities online. There are no stupid questions. You know, go to someone like you know, go to Jeremy's blog, ask him a question. He's a human being. He's going to be able to answer. If you start using King Arthur flour, you write them a question, a human being answers your question at King Arthur flour, which is amazing because it's a nationally yeah. distributed flour. And the oldest uh, mill, I guess, or a company in, for flour in the United oh, States. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and they've just recently launched their artisan line of flowers. Right. I mean, it's taken how many? Well, no, I, I had asked them about yeah. that. I was, one of the guys who works for them has a blog, too, and I told them, I said, why don't you guys have like the the stuff for us guys, you know, yeah. the ones who are the <laughs> the kick-ass bakers and But they did there. something radical recently. When I was living in England, um, so in 2008 to 2009, they did something that in the history of America has never been done before, which is they made a cake flour that's not bleached, which, you know, cake flour is the color that it is and the grind that it is to pull out as much gluten as possible. So basically the flour is murdered to create a very light, super, quote, soft flour, you know, which gets complicated, but wheat is not generally that soft. So they did something they you know they that's a huge radical move and also what's a lot of people don't realize about flour is it's not like carrots you know if you buy carrots they grew in the ground probably in the same place flour these mills are buying flour from sometimes all over the world to create your bag of flour so your bag of flour didn't come 
from a one acre plot in Kansas, even though that's where America grows a lot of its wheat, let's say. So, you know, when I was in Europe, that was a huge deal. You know, where was the flour actually coming from? That very much determined what you could actually make with it. Do you think that's actually going to happen? Single origin flowers? (laughs) I hope not. Yeah. (laughs) You don't want to taste the terroir of different plots of flour? Well, I've had had flour from Argentina. We made baguettes with it. It was really weird flour to use, but we made like the most wonderful baguettes. Yeah. Just like beautiful crumb and everything. Just really nice. But, you know, it's... I kind of feel like, you know, if you're going to send stuff around the world, it better be worth it. You know, it's... I mean, it's nice to get stuff from around the world, but I think the world's changing yeah. that aspect, too, you know? What are the most interesting grains that you've gotten from around the world? <laughs> uh, stuff from my sister in Switzerland. I mean, she just... I mean, whenever you, I go to Switzerland, it's like a candy shop going to the grocery store. They're always like, what are you doing? I'm like, look at this flour. Look at these grains. Oh, my <laughs> God. Because over there, I mean, you get milled uh, grains, and they're all different kinds of, uh, uh, like lighter uh, rye medium rye and here we get like only three standardized Mm. types of rye so it's kind of like you're always challenged to gosh i wonder if i could make that bread that they're making over there and you you generally can't but you can but when you go to places around the world and you see the flowers they have you just go wow and even though in europe a lot of the flour comes from canada or the united states and it's milled and and changed to their specifications yeah um, before I forget, though, I wanted to ask, what's your website, Jeremy? Uh, stirthepots.com. Stirthepots.com. And um, what are some of your favorite bread and baking blogs that uh, other people in the community should tap into? Uh, Wild Yeast blog, my friend Susan out in California. Dan Lepard, of course. Uh, my friends down in Tasmania, uh, sourdough.com. Uh, I wish I could go there right now. They got <laughs> great place they're in yeah in tasmania oh beautiful there's so many it's just like i, I could just give you like my whole bookmark yeah. list and you'd be bugging out oh oh um what's his name Herr Supke in, in germany i will send you the link and Please i'll send do. you a bunch of links yeah no <laughs> and other people should contact jeremy not to overwhelm him but i think it's an important thing to grow this idea in community that uh bread and baking in general is international you know everyone talks about cuisine like these distinct flavors taste techniques but i think a lot of baking is across the board very similar um you just change some of the ingredients yeah everything becomes sort of hybridized but yeah. you still i mean i try to stay to the the old classic yeah. you know but hey things change especially when you're baking because you know the temperature the water everything makes it completely different than you thought it was going to be sometimes yeah. and it's funny now hearing this much about bread baking and how almost dissimilar, like how you were talking about the control and the minutia of things, sweet baking is. Why do you think uh, people pair them and they seem so relative together? I think just putting something in the oven denotes a baker, but I think among bakers, we more clearly define ourselves because, you know, I don't, my line of, I, I'm not really interested in spinning sugar and, you know, making fondant pieces, but or wedding cakes, but the people who are very into it. So we're seeing pastry chefs in America are seen as having to do everything. We have to do plated desserts, bread, everything. But I think once you sort of dive into the overall craft of your craft, 
you you really see, you know, bread bakers think very differently yeah. than, you know, than me, let's say. And I heard this once many years ago um, at a panel where somebody made the distinction. They said, if you go to a patissier and eat a croissant, it will be very buttery, very flaky, very light. Then if you go eat a croissant from a boulanger, you know, it, the bread baker makes it breadier, makes it more about the bread. The pastry chef makes it more about the butter. So it's it's not that one is better than the other. It's just this very different way of thinking about your basic ingredients. Um, but I want to answer the que- the other question, too, which is to say, Heidi Swanson has a blog called 101cookbooks.com, and she has two books. Um, One is called Supernatural Cooking. I oftentimes give it to people and say, just read the first 50 pages. Just read it as a book because she goes through all of the, quote, alternative flowers, whole grains, talks about them. Kim Boyce just wrote a book called Good to the Grain, which, again, instructionally goes through all of the flowers and then for just straight up fun baking cakes cookies i go to smittenkitchen.com uh deb perlman because her recipes work and she tests everything at home so i know that they work at home and then when i bring them into the professional kitchen i just tweak a little bit wow if that's not enough information to get you started i don't know what is so dive into Whatever it is, sweet baking, bread baking, uh, check out Shuna's blog, uh, eggbeater.typepad.com, Jeremy's stirthepots.com, um, and there's such a wealth of knowledge, such a wealth of knowledge in baking in general that, you know, it should be explored. Thank you both for being on the show, and I'm sure this will not be the last week here if you have questions. Thank you. many questions in baking. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Thanks again to Hearst Ranch for sponsoring. Jack Inslee for pretty much doing everything. Um, hope to have you here next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Whole Foods Market celebrates Earth Month with the Do Something Real Film Festival, a collection of six provocative character-driven films focused on food, environmental issues, and everyday people with a greater vision. Come see one of the six features at City Cinemas Village East from Saturday, April 16th through Thursday, April 21st, every night at 6 p.m. Learn more about the films and special events at www.dosomethingreal.com. That's www.dosomethingreel.com. Sponsored by Whole Foods Market. In 2010, EscapeMaker.com won an Emmy Award for their agritourism webisode. So this year they thought, why not bring agritourism and green getaway ideas right to you? Come to the Green Getaways Local Food and Travel Expo on April 30th at One Hanson Place, home of the Brooklyn Flea and former Williamsburg Savings Bank. 
presented by Amtrak, Zipcar, and I Love New York, the Carbon Free event will be a day filled with food, prizes, workshops, and kids' activities. Over 50 getaway destinations, from counties to local farms and bed and breakfasts within a day's drive or train ride of New York City, will be exhibiting on the main floor and in the huge bank vault downstairs. See what's hot in sustainable travel and receive special show only discounts. Grow NYC will be doing workshops on the green market, and Appalachian Mountain Club will offer workshops on adventure bicycling and hiking via mass transit. EscapeMaker.com will be giving away over 50 getaway prizes, ranging from zipline adventure passes to an overnight stay at Mohonk Mountain House. Travel greener, eat local. Come to the expo on April 30th. Get your tickets now at www.escapemaker.com. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great tasting, high quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no brainer.